Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that is less lead beater and more Tory vanquisher. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda, Steve Haynes, was not responsible for that introduction. Hey, Corey. It's been quite an extraordinary week, hasn't it? Uh, England beat Germany on Tuesday. Labour held Batley and Spen on Thursday. Naturally, neither of those were predicted by your humble podcaster. Uh, it's almost like I've got some sort of reverse alchemy going on or something. Uh, we are recording this before England's lost to Ukraine this evening. Uh, and something else that we didn't see coming and now wish to unsee, in fact, is a video of Matt Hancock kissing his aide that led to his resignation. What do all these events mean for the realignment of British politics over the next few months? Less about the affair itself in a, in a very literal sense. Although I am quite kind of intrigued as to how the son got hold, got hold of CCTV footage from his ministerial office. But let's just park that for a second. Um, I want to talk more about his replacement. Some people know him as the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. But obviously we listeners know him as the Sag. Yeah, we do indeed. The Sag is back. Cue the boys are back in town, blaring over uh, the, the the sound system whilst he calmly walks into uh, into Downing Street, looking cool and suave. Not blaring, surely. I think it's more <laughs> Thatcherite than that. <laughs> I mean, depending on who you talk to, some might say <laughs> the Sag was one of Johnson's adversaries in the uh, Tory leadership uh, competition, which obviously Johnson uh, eventually won and was very swiftly booted out of, of, of government upon Johnson's ascension to, to, to leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister. So his return is fascinating because he's not a part of Johnson's clique, not that really Johnson has any kind of base within the party in and of itself, but the fact that, but the fact that Saj, the Saj has come back is very much a sign of that I feel it also almost feels like Johnson at least himself doesn't necessarily feel like there's anybody that can be promoted upwards that doesn't already have some form of experience I'm wondering if might that that might be a case of because the uh, Javid has just decided that you know what I'm not going to be ever become leader um, of the uh, of the Conservative Party so and he's basically said to Johnson yeah that I'm, I'm not interested in this anymore and therefore he's being brought back in into the tent uh, because he's no longer deemed as a, as a threat or whatever. We don't agree with Javid on a lot, but I think it's probably safe to say that he's probably the upper echelon of competence <laughs> in this government, at least. That's a bit like saying that Dom Sib is one of England's best batsmen at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. But hey, um, like ha- having somebody that's at least experienced in government come in to handle health in a tricky situation is at least a sensible call like the the only other conservative backbencher i could think that would be worth kind of bringing into this uh into the role that might have been a better choice would have been jeremy hunt now again don't agree with him on very much 
um, you know, hasn't necessarily had a good track record overall as uh, as health secretary, but at least he knows the department. At least he's got relationships with a lot of the senior civil servants, all of these sorts of things. Uh, and as such, he would uh, be able to just kind of slot in and get running very, very quickly. I have to say, I think given the widely reported levels of burnout that NHS staff are facing, I feel like a surefire way to tip many of them over the edge would bring back Jeremy Hunt into health and social care. He's been doing a very, actually a reasonably good job actually yeah, trying to hold the government to account um, on health. I suspect he's probably not made very many friends in the Johnson's government. So all in all, Sage's return is interesting. If, if for no other reason, then it kind of demonstrates the seemingly from at least Johnson's perspective, the lack of options he seems to have. That's interesting. I'm not sure I agree with a lot of that analysis, actually. It's an interesting point about not promoting someone either from the cabinet or, say, uh, pushing Helen Helen Waitley, I think, the, the junior, one of the junior ministers up to Secretary of State. The impression I get from what I've read is that that's because Johnson is planning a wider government reshuffle at some point and therefore didn't want to preempt that. The flip side of that is that I feel like Boris Johnson's planning a wider reshuffle has been said <laughs> pretty consistently for a few months and hasn't happened. But I imagine it's easier to bring someone in from outside and not have to worry about shifting people around. You said that um, Javid was kicked out soon after uh, Johnson became Prime Minister. It's not quite true, because actually Javid was made Chancellor. Yes, he left without delivering a budget, and that was partly because of a number 10 power grab and the relationship with Dominic Cummings, wasn't it? Because I think there's two things that actually are quite interesting. One of them is that in those discussions with Javid and Johnson, Javid was more of a spending hawk. And therefore, we're talking about this kind of political realignment, and we've talked endlessly about the, the difference between the Northern Tories who want government spending and the Southern Tories who don't. And bringing Sajid Javid into the cabinet is very much strengthening the deficit hawk side of the argument, which is interesting. And again, uh, appointing Javid in that sense, uh, in, that, in, that, in that sense, kind of made him quite an odd appointment of Chancellor in the first place. But again, that's partly, I think Steve Richards makes the point, Johnson doesn't really get people, doesn't really understand people necessarily, and doesn't really understand political management of the cabinet. But the reason why Javid left his post as Chancellor was essentially because he refused to sack all his advisors and have a sort of Dominic Cummings take over the Treasury. One of the big wars that's going on at the moment is the battle between Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, with Cummings quite obviously trying to take Johnson down. And it feel and Cummings was very much going for Hancock. Therefore, I think replacing Matt Hancock with Sajid Javid, who um, has also been a target of Cummings's ire in various blogs and substacks this week. I wonder if this is more an indication of Johnson trying to push back against Cummings rather than maybe taking a more strategic line against his government. And the final thing is you talked about the sort of Tory base support for Johnson. Um, and I think one of the things there is that actually, as you say, yeah, his, his support is quite slight, but it's based on the fact that he's a winner. And given that we've seen the Tories lose two by-elections on the bounce that you'd expect them to take, I think means you're going to see. Uh, and we've got, um, again, one cabinet minister has gone in a sex scandal. We've got another cabinet minister, Michael Gove, and that's Richard Force yesterday with some very interesting innuendo-led front pages on the, on the Daily Telegraph. It's a bit like, well, it, actually, it's a bit like the weather in our outside my house in Birmingham at the moment, where the thunderstorm hasn't arrived yet, but 
does feel like it's coming. You, I keep on looking at a lot of the way so much of the, the, the news is breaking for the Conservative Party at the moment. And I, I can't help but like, obviously I wasn't really paying attention back then. But um, during the 90s when, you know, all of the sleaze, you've got cash for questions, all of these different little things just kind of building up, building up, building up, building up after the Tories had been in power for so long. It, it does almost feel like it might be that kind of scenario where, so many of these people who have been in, in, in power for so long, because like Hancock um, was at least a minister under, under like Cameron and Osborne. I don't necessarily, because he was one of um, Osborne's like um, protégés. Gove's obviously been in, been in power for all, all of that time um, as, as, as well. All of these people suddenly now having a load of scandals emerge after they've been in the public eye for well over a decade. And again, this is one of those reasons why if Johnson is going to be doing a wider reshuffle, then that's probably a good thing because it can bring in some more fresh faces and kind of clear out some of the um, the, the clutter, for, for lack of a better term. But again... They're people, people, Steve. They might be Tory ministers, but they're people. <laughs> We've been talking about like Johnson needing to do quite a wide-ranging reshuffle ever since, really, he came on board, and he's never really done it in a major well, he way did sack half the cabinet he, yeah he, he sacked half the, yeah he sacked half the cabinet when he came prime minister but then each of those ind- individuals people that he brought in have proven to be not very good corrupt all of these other things like we've said it time and time again the actual quality of this cabinet in terms of their ability to operate is really poor by by any re- any measure measurable standard and uh, the, the, none of them have have gone there's been multiple opportun- multiple situations which somebody should have been sacked pretty patel for instance and hasn't been johnson started to try and go to the wall to for, for hancock and until he realized that it was politically unfeasible to defend him and keep him around johnson doesn't like moving people around and uh, which means i don't i don't necessarily know if we're going to get that wide-ranging reshuffle necessarily and if it is then he's going to have even more problems because he needs to get rid of a lot of people in the cabinet in order to to actually kind of have a chance of making the next part of his term work. I suppose the question is who comes in? Maybe it turns out uh, Birmingham MP Gary Sandbrook finally uh, succeeds in his long held naked ambition to become undersecretary for paperclips. Let's let's move on from that to some of the more substantive issues around Sajid Jaffet's, or to give him his proper title, the Sajid's elevation into health secretary. So we've talked about the, the spending implications. Don't want to harp on on that. Um, it's something we've talked about a lot in terms of British politics realignment, but it's definitely something to look on in the future, especially when we think about some of the other issues we're going to talk about. On the backbenches, Javid's been quite an outspoken advocate of prioritising the economy over lockdown restrictions. I think we've talked about on the podcast is a, is a false dichotomy, given that the countries that have managed to manage the health crisis of COVID better have also had the least economic hit so it it doesn't work as a it it only works i think in the minds of certain tory mps and certain newspaper economists given what javid has said in public given what johnson's saying it looks like 19th of july is going to be when sort of restrictions end and then but it, it doesn't feel to me like the government is doing anything to help businesses sort of cope with that transition given we've got rising cases uh, and given the situation in schools, which I think is is an absolute massive issue in terms of uh, bubbles, in terms of isolation, which um, 
turns out Gavin Williamson, well, this is your point about cabinet ministers, isn't it? Gavin Williamson's not entirely uh, on top of his brief on how to deal with that. There could be things the government could be doing around, say, providing better PPE for frontline workers in hospitality and healthcare, could maybe invest in trying to better ventilate buildings, um, especially public buildings, could be doing a lot more, say, on sick pay, uh, which, you know, Britain's sick pay, I think it's about £90 a week. It's one of the lowest levels, and certainly in the G7, the G20, but there's been no movement on that at all. So any of the things that the government could be trying to do as we move out of lockdown, it's not really doing. And the other thing, just before I bring you in, is um, is that is the massive, and we're going to talk a bit more about this, I think, on the future podcast, but the, the massive intro that he's got as health secretary, you've got a backlog of five million cases. You've got, as I mentioned, a workforce completely burnt out, understandably after a pretty hellish 18 months. We've got a new head of the NHS to appoint, Dido Hiding, everyone's favourite contact tracer, very publicly lobbying for the job and leaking things to, and giving various briefings to various newspapers. And then you've also got the uh, social care, again, an area massively affected by the pandemic. Two years ago, Boris Johnson said he had a plan for social care. We haven't seen any sort of plan, cross-party or otherwise. And it is getting to a bit of a crisis point where if nothing, well, you say that, it feels like something needs to happen. But if there's any constant about British politics over the past decade is that nothing will actually happen on social care and eventually the system will just fall over. Yeah, there is a huge, huge amount of work that needs to be done by by Javid. And, and, and really, like that's all, to, to a degree, that's all there really is to to say about it. I do not envy anybody who has to kind of handle all of that. In, in many ways, it's almost like a bit of a poison chalice, potentially him coming back in this role. That the huge backlog of uh, NHS you know, appointments, surgeries, you know, things that need to happen is going to be a, a ticking time bomb. It needs to be got onto grip with very, very quickly. Otherwise, they're going to suddenly find an absolute ton of stories in the sun, in the Daily Mail, about, you know, little old ladies who can't get the hip replacements anymore because the Conservatives have just ruined, uh, well, because waiting lists are just too long. And that was always a, a potentially uh, a thing that was coming for the Conservatives anyway, in, in various forms due to some of the previous decisions that have been made. But that's just been amplified by the fact that the NHS had to effectively shut down for everything other than COVID and absolute emergencies. So there's an awful lot of things that are routine, which won't have been happening will need to happen in order to improve people's quality of lives the conservatives will need to have a plan in place to deal with that and as you say you've got a burnt out workforce you can't just say okay we're just going to work double time folks because they've been working triple time for the past 18 months yeah and as i say i think we can we can talk more i think about that on a on a future podcast i think in terms of just generally what it means for british politics and this question of realignment that we're we're sort of we've touched on almost worldwide we're kind of going through an era of vaccine politics at the moment uh, and it's played out in britain in may uh, as it did elsewhere that you saw boosts for incumbents both SNP, labor and conservative because of the role in getting that vaccine out what i think is interesting given some of the polling that's happened over the last couple of weeks is that there's some evidence that that vaccine bounce in the polls is wearing off a little bit for instance, you've seen the government's approval rating of how it's handled coronavirus is slipping, I think, into the red for the first time in months. You're seeing a majority of people thinking that Britain's heading in the wrong direction again for the first time in months. I think that's particularly significant when uh, one of the, the causes of this realignment is Brexit. 
And when you talk about the country going in the wrong direction, the right direction, June 2016 saw a complete shift where people who voted Remain saw the country going in the right direction, then suddenly saw we were on the wrong track. And it was exactly the opposite. If you voted Brexit, you were usually quite um, pessimistic about the future of the country and you weren't quite optimistic. And so to see that shift, I think, is, is really quite significant. And that's something else that, that happened this week was the slow winding down of furlough and businesses having to pay more towards the cost of keeping people on furlough. Uh, and I think that is a, a slow burn. That, I think that can have a massive knock-on effect over the next few months on jobs and on, on employment, something to watch as well. Um, I'm guessing one of the reasons for this sort of lack of optimism is because it's become pretty obvious that in terms of the vaccine rollout, and we were talking about this months ago, that the UK was ahead of the EU because of the much publicised problems with the EU vaccine rollout. Whereas now EU countries starting to catch up with the rate of British vac vaccinations in the UK. But essentially Johnson squandered the early advantage that the UK had because they kept the borders open with India because Johnson wanted the trade deal, which again, I, I sort of mentioned on the podcast last week, is it's a, an example of Brexit not only affecting the government bandwidth to deal with stuff, but also having big knock-on effects in terms of what Britain's policy actually is. And now the UK has got more infections in, in coronavirus than the rest of the EU has put together. I mean, it could mean, and this is a big question to sort of dunk in halfway through an episode, could mean that we are past peak Johnson. One of the reasons I think we say that is, um, as we said, his, his, there are many people on the Tory backbenches who do not think he is a suitable person to be prime minister, but keep him there because he's a winner and wins elections. And we've just seen not only the loss in Chesham, which we and Amersham, which we talked about last week, but also we've seen in Batley and Spen uh, the Tories not gain a seat, which they were very, very confident of taking. Yeah, and uh, and I think not to spend too much time actually talking about um, Batley and Spen on this, but when you look at the the actual results from the constituency by election as well, it wasn't just a case of oh, you know, the Tories just didn't do enough. Actually, they didn't gain any ground at all. Like what actually happened was George Galloway came in and just split that split the Labour vote significantly, and the Tories didn't really seem to make it make any headway or, or any march forward at all in the seat. Which, again, when you look at the polling figures, you would expect them to have at least made some kind of gains. And given how narrow that that victory was for Labour, if they had made any kind of actual gains, even small ones, that would have probably won them the seat. So there's definitely a, 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 a an issue for the for the Tories. And what seems to have happened actually does seem to be the opposite. So not to give Galloway too much oxygen of publicity, I, I, we'll leave that to lesser podcasters. Than, than ourselves like Owen Jones. Thank heaven, Steve, that Labour did hold back the spend because it's meant there hasn't been a Labour civil war and Labour Twitter's been very, very quiet, uh, which is, is useful. Um, but what you did see as well is you saw um, some voters in the more affluent parts of the constituency who would normally vote Tory were either switching to Labour or staying at home. And that, I think, is, is interesting. Um, there was a Labour source who, um, who said, we've got a new voting coalition because we're winning over Tory voters and kept enough of our uh, existing vote, which I'm hoping is maybe 
overly tired spin. It's interesting when it does seem like the Tory tactics in Batley and Spent were essentially to say and do absolutely nothing and just wait for George Galloway to take checks out of the Labour vote. Yeah, and uh, that's that's two by-elections in a row, basically, where the Conservative tactics have just been, or strategy, I should say, has been just stay low, don't do anything to draw attention to yourself, don't screw up, and we'll be able to take it. That is definitely a tactical blunder in, um, like, that was obviously would have been, in, should have been a tactical blunder for, for people paying attention um, for um, Batley and Spen. Chesham and Amersham, like, you can kind of see, given the, the, the majority that was there, um, previously for the Conservatives, why they might have adopted that approach. But given the fact that they had such a shock result coming out of Chesham and Amersham, and then they just tried the exact same thing up in Batley and Spen, it does not speak highly of the campaign, campaigning nous of the current Conservative leadership. Well, and, uh, and actually, I think something consistent in both races um, is this overt appeal to Bork to pork barrel politics, where you have Rishi Sunak essentially saying, well, uh, a Tory MP will give you more investment for your area. And there was definitely a sense that, um, I want to say Dewsbury, I think it was, down the road from Batley and Spen, they just had a new Tory MP, they just got money from the Towns Fund. Maybe we should elect a Tory MP so you can get some money, which is... Uh, and we talked we talked about that after the mayoral election because a similar thing played out in the West Midlands as well in the recent mayoral election. Interesting tactic. Something to finish off. Oh, and in fact, we should mention just before we do, um, just to finish off, by election in a seat in Dominic Raab's constituency also went Lib Dem on a big swing. So more evidence for the blue wall. Whenever this sort of happens, and part of the standing orders of of British politics is that whenever we have a result in or an impending result, even. In, in any situation, there are people who say, well, this proves that the opposition parties need to work together and inevitably start talking about a progressive alliance. What does Batley say about that? Because the Lib Dem vote went down in Batley. There's some evidence of Lib Dem tactical voting. Equally, there was no Green candidate standing um, because, uh, more about that accident, because I think he, he made some offensive tweets, which meant he, he ended up not standing. Um, and that margin of 300, you could well say it's because a Green wasn't standing. Does it have any lessons? What, are there any conclusions we can draw from this? I, I think we can probably safely say that if the Greens had actually had a candidate, there's probably a good chance that they would have gotten more than the majority that um, Kim Ledbetter actually ended up getting. In that, that hypothetical, a progressive alliance might have kept her in versus versus not if, if there hadn't been one, if the Greens had actually stood. But more broadly, one of the big flaws in the logic of an awful lot of the people who are arguing for a progressive alliance is that it assumes that all left-wing or left-of-centre parties are in many ways interchangeable and that all, all voters that, that vote for them currently will happily then just switch their vote to yes to a n other left-wing party if if given the opportunity to do so and it's the only option that's not necessarily the case um i think it was mark pack hello mark by the way um to steal your line uh cory president still i believe of uh, of the liberal democrats and uh did, did a bit of analysis a bit of analysis on this kind of like top of the head stuff so it's not necessarily 
um, you know, to be taken uh, as a hundred percent red, but like still makes the point quite well. I feel taken as red. See what he did there. <laughs> and I think that's a bit harsh. My all his analysis is incredibly nuanced and, and calculated, rather than just <laughs> top of head, back of envelope. A bit of projection there, I think, Steve. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he even himself going uh, in, in in this thread basically said this is just an example. Um, but uh, but yeah, essentially he 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 pointed out that if you look at the areas where the Lib Dem vote the Lib Dem votes that, that, that they did get in, in Batley and Spen were, they weren't necessarily going to be um, voting uh, Labour because they are from more Tory kind of areas. Based on the figures that, um, that Mark was utilising, he basically said, if we, did the, if we assume this, this certain split, then actually what happens is Ledbetter still wins, but has a majority of nine. And so it's very much a, a good example of that of that notion that the Lib Dems may very well, broadly speaking, be a left wing party, but not all people who vote Lib Dem are going to be left wing. Like we know for a fact that uh, we know for a fact that actually, that at the moment the um, the Lib Dems are doing better at taking votes away from the Conservatives. So are we suddenly saying that there's a, a whole host of secret left-wingers who have been voting Tory all of this this time? No, 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 not at all. Like, there are Conservatives who are migrating in some areas to the uh, to the Liberal Democrats. So the notion that all all people that are voting that are voting for a left-wing party are left-wing themselves and would want to participate in this progressive alliance is is, is is to a degree somewhat farcical because it's it's not demonstrated but in reality at all so it's never necessarily going to work in that in that kind in the kind of way that i think the people who want a progressive progressive alliance would like it to a lot of this is trying to put square pegs into round holes because we have a ridiculous voting system i mostly i think agree with that as you say i think part most of the issue with a progressive alliance is that it assumes that voters are blocks that can be moved around like lego bricks until somehow you've got your Lego tower looks bigger than the Tories Lego tower and then everyone's happy, which I think is, as you say, it's a very one dimensional approach to how politics works. And it, it feels like that kind of progressive alliance approach is very much just a Twitter thing with people who are very active on Twitter, but don't actually, it, 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 to sound a bit arrogant, don't really know how politics works and how electioneering works. They just look at it in terms of numbers. The, the other thing is, as you, as you say, like, do the Lib Dems see themselves as a left-wing party or not? And certainly, I know Mark was talking about the kind of vote, Lib Dem voters in Cheshire and Amersham are not necessarily left-leaning and would, as you say, either vote maybe Lib Dem or, or Tory. Certainly elements like that in, in Birmingham Lib Dems as well. Do we think that the Lib Dems voted Labour this time because they're now a fancy left-wing party? Or was it actually because, and this is something we didn't mention, probably should, the fact that actually Labour had a cracking candidate. That could be the factor rather than, say, the means of production. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also worth uh, worth noting in regards to Kim Ledbetter and that the, the way she uh, held herself in terms of like the campaign, which got very nasty and divisive, as you say, with Labour activists being like, basically assaulted on, on, on the streets and you know, at times, like she, she put forward a message of unity and it, it, it went over very, very well. Um, so. and, and amazing dignity, I think, when being heckled by pro Galloway supporters, one of whom is literally an obscure Birmingham reference. If you're going to have a progressive alliance, it is explicitly an anti-Tory alliance. And it feels like the logic then 
If the logic for a progressive alliance was similar to the opposition parties in, say, Hungary, who have been pretty bad at working together in a also similar rubbish first-past-the-post system that's been uh, gerrymandered by Videsh. But if they were to say, look, the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson's Conservative Party in particular is an existential threat to British democracy and to British institutions, all the opposition parties have an obligation, therefore, to work together and make sure the Conservative government's unseated. And this is how we do it. But that's not really what they're saying. I mean, I think also it's a little bit of a stretch to say they're an existential threat to British democracy, despite a lot of the attacks on institutions that we're, that we're seeing. I don't, you can't, I don't think, make the argument that we are Auburn's hungry yet. People do, but that's, again, it's mainly Remain Twitter scaremongering. Um, Or my mum not really understanding what fascist really means. (laughs) If you're not going to make that argument, which I can see that there is a legitimate case for it, even if we might not disagree with it, even if we might not agree with it entirely. But if you're not making the argument, then, yeah, you're essentially saying that all these parties which believe different things should band together because we don't like the Tories. But as you say, there are Labour Tory switchers, uh, swing voters, there are... Lib Dem Tory switches. It's not in, it's not incredibly obvious um, unless you have the underlying logic. But it feels like most of the people who make the case for a progressive alliance just assume that we'll all say that Tories are bad, which is which is fine. But I'm not sure that's necessarily what the wider electorate would see. No, and, and also you've got to take into consideration that because we work in a, uh, a majoritarian first-past-the-post system, um, mm. <laughs> um, which with, you know, individual kind of like seats and constituencies and everything, you've got to, you've got to also make, make the case of, okay, where are these seats where we can actually make this progressive alliance actually work in, in, in some capacity in a way that gives everybody, everybody like an increase in the number of seats that they want, that, 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 they, that they hold, um, c- removes the Tory majority and not just kind of does it like barely, it needs to be like solidly removed to the extent where you could say the Tories aren't get, ever getting in power again under, under this arrangement to try and, you know, force them to to adapt or change in a way that makes it more uh palatable to the rest of us you know where are though all of those seats do they even exist if anything i'd say it probably helps the tories more because it's the sort of thing which might scare just enough kind of lib dem tory leaners um to maybe lean more towards tories and, and something we've not talked about in terms of the progressive like that realignment of uk politics is the position of the smp and you are in a bit of a catch-22 situation where we have a ridiculous voting system. If you're going to have a voting system that seats better reflected votes and that didn't rely on a small number of votes changing in a small number of seats to produce an out, um, a government with an outsized majority, you need to have some sort of electoral reform, which probably means parties having to work together in the first instance under a first-past-the-post system to get some sort of system together. But where you fit the SNP into that, given not just Labour's position on Scottish independence, but also the effective Tory attacks in 2015 on Ed Miliband being in Alex Salmon's pocket, it is hard to see. Yeah, 100%.
rather than putting Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket, you could put money in our pockets, couldn't you, Steve? Uh, you could indeed. You could head over to uh, uh, patreon.com slash not enough champagne, uh, where you could join our group of elite backers, our, our champagners, who, are, who for a few quid every month gain access to unique episodes and blog posts and things. Um, we've done some roundtables with some of our regular talking heads. Um, yeah, and uh, you can you can head over there, give it a look and uh, throw us a few quid. Everything goes towards us maintaining and running the, the the podcast and as long as we've got supporters um helping us out we can we can keep doing this like in, in perpetuity or up until the point where Corey gets sick of me or i get sick of his puns i imagine you getting sick of my puns surely <laughs> when a man is tired of puns steve um our website is nothingofchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash nothingofchampagne. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Pookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.